WATD presents John Paul, the car doctor. All things automotive. Have questions? Call 781-837-4900. Now, here's John Paul, the car doctor. And good Sunday morning, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Car Doctor program on 95.9 WATD, your South Shores radio station. And uh, if you've been car shopping lately, you've noticed that uh, maybe there isn't a lot of as many cars as you used to see. I mean, if you went by some big car dealerships, you'd see five or 600 cars, and sometimes you'll only see less than that. I was talking to a car dealer the other day who they were a Ford dealer, and they said they normally have two or 300 new Fords in stock. They're a some of the popular models, they're down to maybe 30 or so. And if you've been shopping, you've also seen some prices and market adjustment prices, which kind of scare me a little bit. And a lot of this is because of something called supply chain issues. And, you know, what does that really mean? Well, we have with us uh, Rob Hanfield. He is the Bank of America University, Distinguished Professor of Supply Change Management at North Carolina State University, and he's also Director of Supply Chain Resource Cooperative. Uh, Rob, that makes you wicked smart. That's all I can say. Well, well, thank you very much. Uh, I don't know about that, but it, you know, I do know a lot about supply chains, and it's a pleasure to be here today. You know, one of the things, it, it, was, it was kind of interesting. I, I was talking with uh, Jim Morrison, the head of Jeep one day and we were talking about this and we were talking about supply chain and he, you know he kind of joked and said you know two years ago he couldn't even spell semiconductor you know and now yeah. you know that's something that you know comes up all the time is you know is what we're seeing with supply chain is it is it uh you know something that happens at the port is it something that happens at manufacturing what what is supply chain i guess really you know let's start at the very beginning what is what is really supply chain well um a, a supply chain is is basically all of the uh organizations that produce products and services that go into that end product e.g. your car and uh for that car to get there on that lot it has to be uh, it has to be shipped there. Uh, they have to produce it, and, and most of the big three, for instance, are assemblers. They don't they don't make the parts, so they buy them from a what's called a tier one supplier, like a Lear Seating or a Johnson Controls or Magna, that are making the the dashboard components, that are making the seats, that are making the uh, exhaust systems, etc. And those guys, of course, have to buy parts from their suppliers. Um, and if they happen to be chips, most of the chips are made in, in China and Taiwan. And so they have to, to buy them from those suppliers. So it, you can see it goes on and on. And, and the deeper you go into these supply chains, um, you know, the, the less we know about them. And, and that's what caused all the problems in the first place is that uh, people didn't really understand where all these parts were coming from. And over time especially during the pandemic, uh, we started having problems way, way deep in that supply chain. And it was something that, I guess, affected a little bit of everything. I know, and this was probably, I guess, the second year of COVID, 
I ordered a refrigerator in August, just a plain old refrigerator, nothing fancy, just a plain old white box refrigerator. And they told me it would be in in 30 days, and then they told me it would be in in 60 days, and then they told me it would be in, I ordered it in August, and they told me maybe I would see it in March or April. And they said, well, it's a supply chain issue. And, you know, I'm like, I'm like, well, is it stuck? Is it stuck on a boat somewhere? Where, where is it? And they're like, well, you know, we don't know. We just know, you know, we ordered, you know, a bunch of them and we don't know where they are. So it, it really does. It really did affect a lot of things, in, you know, and certainly cars are one of them. And I guess part of this it was part of this that maybe manufacturing misjudged the COVID time as well, like, you know, you know, people thought, oh, people are going to be staying home. They're not going to be buying cars. They're not going to be renovating houses. They're not going to be building houses. And in fact, that was just the opposite, right? Well, that's exactly right, John. And, and you know, it's funny you should say, because I had the exact same thing happen to me. When I bought a refrigerator, I had to wait uh, eight months to get it. And again, it was just uh, an off the shelf, you know, fridge, nothing special. Um, what happened is, you know, during the pandemic, um, essentially the pandemic shut down everybody. Everybody stopped producing because of the stay-at-home orders. They, they sent all the workers home. So uh, when you send everybody home, the factory stopped producing. Now, on top of that, you also had um, uh, most of the stuff was coming from Asia, and uh, the borders were closed, so none of the stuff was even getting across the border, the stuff that was produced. Uh, then what you had happened in 2021 was uh, the L.A. port. The L.A. port brings in about 35% of all of the products, mostly from China, and it became bottled up. Uh, it, there wasn't enough capacity. And at one point, we had more than 100 ships sitting out in the ocean waiting to unload their cargo, and they couldn't get in. And there were probably another 100 ships in China waiting to pick up their cargo, and they couldn't get in. So uh, the ports themselves became problematic. Uh, and then the last piece of it, which people often don't talk about, is is labor. Uh, a lot of people started retiring during COVID, and a lot of that knowledge and that expertise went away. And we really haven't recovered. There's, there's still a labor shortage. Uh, unemployment is, is still at record lows. Uh, and we can't get people to fill the jobs that are out there. So that that's also a problem. And when you combine all these things together, uh, you know, uh, labor shortages, port problems, COVID issues, and then you throw in some of the climate change problems, like the big polar freeze in Texas that shut down all the plants that, that cause uh, resin problems, uh, you have these, these uh, problems showing up everywhere. And now remember, to build a car, you only need to not have one part. If you have that one chip that you need to build that car and you don't have it, uh, that car sits on the lot until that chip shows up. So, so there were a lot of those kinds of issues that occurred uh, over the last two to three years. Yeah, I think I remember seeing a picture of, and you you never know what to believe on the internet sometimes, but I saw a picture of, I think it was a, uh, uh, maybe it was a stadium or a ball field or something with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Ford F-150 trucks all sitting there parked because they were missing a chip. Yep, yep, that's exactly right. You only need one part to shut down the supply chain, one missing part, right? 
Yeah, and so I guess the 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 question is: Are we getting any? Are we, well, two things. You know, one of the things I found out was even though the vehicle manufacturers weren't producing as many vehicles, and the car dealerships didn't have as many vehicles to sell, profit at the car dealerships was actually quite good because they were selling at above manufacturers' suggested retail price, which. Um, which you know normally you go in and you you negotiate down from MSRP down to dealer cost, but in this case you were going in and you're looking at MSRP and you were trying to negotiate the the uh, added the added market adjustment price, and that was somewhat due to the low inventory. Are we starting to see an end to that? Well, yeah, and and that's exactly what happened. The other thing that happened. John is, you know, the price of used vehicles went through the roof. Uh, you know, you could the 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 price to buy a used vehicle was uh, almost the same as a as a new vehicle, or a thousand dollars difference for a while there. And uh, if you went in and they had such low inventory, uh, as a buyer, you had very little negotiating room uh, to you know to get that dealer, and they would tell you, well, if you don't buy it today, it'll be sold by tomorrow because we hardly have any inventory. So that is, fortunately, uh, that state of, of uh, the market is changing. Uh, we're starting to see a lot more inventory come in. Uh, the chip shortage has been uh, alleviated. They're getting the parts. They're getting the components. And you're starting to see inventory of a lot of models uh, starting to come in now. Um, I, I think uh, the best time, if you're going to go buy a car, is likely going to be at the end of this year as the 2024 models start coming in. They start coming in uh, in October, November time frame. And at that point, there isn't enough room on the lot, and they want to get rid of the 23 models. So uh, that that's the best time if, if you want to buy a 23 uh, to, to negotiate with a dealer. And I guess that's uh, you know probably the case with a little bit of everything. I I read just the other day you can go buy the ninth generation iPad for like two hundred and seventy dollars now because the new ones coming out and whatever chip shortage there was that was affecting the iPads have sort of gone away and the other ones are being discounted pretty heavily to get rid of them. So sort of the same idea with cars as we hit the end of this year. Although I will say I've been saying what you just said. I think I've been saying for two years now. You know the chip shortages you know looks like it's getting better you know near the end of you know 2021 was a good year near the end of 2022 now near the end of 2023 it took a lot longer than a lot of people thought right oh yeah yeah it's it's you know it takes a while for for supply chains to work out the kinks you know when you shut them down uh it takes a while to get product flowing again and, and things moving and and you know what also happens uh in 22 uh, is that people went crazy and over-ordered. Uh, so there was way too much inventory uh, in, in many retail supply chains in 2022. And so you could actually get some pretty good discounts on, on uh, if you were buying, uh, you know, appliances or uh, tools or, or things like that. You could get yeah. a good deal on yeah, and, and, you know, going back to, you know, like you said, the many layers of supply chain, you know, it could be that, you know, I was I was uh, uh, listening to somebody from Airstream, the trailer company, and they were saying that sort of right in the middle of COVID, they had the best year they ever had because they, um, you know, people were people weren't staying in hotels. They were they were buying Airstream travel trailers. They were building these combination mobile office 
uh, travel trailers so people could take their families but also still work while they're on the road. And one of the problems in Airstream trailers are, uh, you know, aluminum and, uh, and stainless steel, and the components that go into making aluminum and stainless steel all of a sudden got to be in short supply because whatever those chemicals and, and materials were uh, became hard to do. So even though Airstream maybe could have, uh, you know, built up their assembly line, they couldn't, they couldn't get their, their suppliers to have the raw materials necessary to make the, the, uh, the aluminum sheets they needed to make the trailers. Well, that's, that's right. And, and people often forget, you know, that there's um, these commodities and raw materials are essential for building uh, a lot of these products. And I'm going to diverge for a moment and talk about the electric vehicles supply chain. Um, you know, there's predictions, they're saying by 2030 that 40% of all cars will be electric vehicles. Well, today, the number of electric vehicles on the road is only 1%. Um, but the, the critical materials uh, to build the batteries, which includes lithium, cobalt, silver, uh, nickel, zinc, uh, they're in extremely short supply. And we don't have enough mines to mine all the minerals that we require to get to a 40% number. Uh, so I don't, I don't see, and, and guess what? A lot of those mines are controlled by the Chinese. So I, I have real reservations about uh, how quickly the electric vehicle market's going to grow. I think I'm going to hold on to my internal combustion engine for a while. Yeah, I, I've kind of said, you know, in Massachusetts where we live, there's a uh, a mandate with our state and several surrounding states that, you know, all new vehicles sold after 2035 will be zero emissions, either battery electric or hydrogen or something. Um, but I, I still somehow, and I guess I'm old enough to remember different mandates over the years, you know, even though they, you know, even though someone said this is what we're going to do by this year, some of it was based on supply and some of it was based on what manufacturers could make. And part of it was based on what consumers wanted to buy. And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, if you if you mandate something and nobody's buying it, it, it just ain't going to work. And the same thing if the manufacturers go, hey, look, you know, we're losing billions of dollars building electric vehicles right now. If we continue to do this, you know, if we if we make, uh, you know, if. If we make widgets and, and on each widget we we make, we lose a dollar. If we make a billion widgets, we're going to lose a billion dollars. So that doesn't make any sense. Um, you know, that's all part of this whole story with, um, you know, this, the, these electric vehicle mandates, right? Oh, absolutely. I think I think the people making the mandates, uh, you know, politicians, they don't, they don't understand how supply chains work. For instance, you know, most of the cobalt comes from the Congo, and it's mined in uh, these horrific uh, working conditions, you know, where little kids are working and getting injured, and, you know, it's not at all sustainable, uh, and, and it's, it's worse for the environment. And if you look at, you know, the, the processes for refining this stuff, it's using uh, coal power in China, and, you know, it's dumping tons of emissions into, into the air from these coal-powered plants. So, you know, is the electric vehicle supply chain uh, green? Not at all. It's it's worse than, than a lot of the production facilities for the internal combustion engine. 
Yeah, I, I remember talking with, uh, and I'm kind of making up her title. She was like global vice president of sustainability or something for Ford Motor Company. She readily admitted that, you know, building a Ford Lightning or a Mustang Mach-E, you know, you got to keep it seven or eight years before the kind of low emissions from owning an EV offset all of the production emissions it takes to make it. And yep. that was that was probably even a somewhat conservative number. Absolutely, absolutely, and and no one's talking about what are we going to do with all these batteries? You know, can we recycle them, or how do we get material out of them? Uh, that's that's a, a topic not a lot of people want to talk about either. Yeah, and and the you know you look at some of the battery recycling now, and you know a lot of these batteries do have second lives in in second lives rather in you know power supplies and other things and you know the lithium that comes out of a recycled battery is more environmentally friendly than like you pointed out trying to pull cobalt out of a mine that's mined by kids um so it's a it's it's a better solution and who knows maybe you know recycling ev batteries will be the next you know multi-billion dollar you know company who who knows i mean it sounds like it sounds like there's money to be made in the recycling of of uh, batteries but you know time will tell when when it becomes cost effective to be able to do it right well that's that's absolutely right and and like i said there's there's seven of these you know green uh green metals they call them you know one of them is is nickel and and the bulk of of nickel is found in in indonesia and there, uh, the government is employing something called acid leaching technology, which is a really nasty technology. And, you know, it can be an environmental disaster because you get all these, uh, what are called tailings, you know, the leftover, mm. uh, uh, the chemical tailings, which produces millions of tons, and they're dumping them into the ocean, and, and they cause cancer. So, you know... What yeah. are we doing here? Are we really going after the right the right solution? Yeah, it, it it really is interesting about how all of this is going to work, and you know, you know, and, and I guess if it's going to work, and you know, going back to our original start of our conversation about you know, you know, being able, you know, Jim Morrison being able to spell semiconductor, um, you know, we are starting to build, you know, chip production is coming back to the United States, right? Oh yeah. It is. It is. Um, you know, as you know, there's there's several chip uh, production facilities. One is uh, uh, Taiwan Semiconductor is, is building one in Arizona. Uh, Intel is bringing one uh, right to uh, Columbus, Ohio. But but we have to remember, you know, this is only just a single uh, fabrication facility. Uh, you have an entire again supply chain behind each one of those chips. Uh, you know, producing a chip. Uh, is not easy. It, it has 650 individual processes that, that are required. And every one of those processes requires, you know, components and materials and chips. So, you know, this has been built up over the years in places like Taiwan. We don't have all of those suppliers here in the U.S. So uh, building a, a couple of fabs is great, but it's it's a start. Uh, you know, you still need the supply chain to, to support it. So I guess the bottom line is, our, you know, we're starting to see we're starting to see some, I guess, some relaxation of the bottlenecks along the way. But um, 
is are, are we ever going to feel normal again? Well, I, I think I think so. I think we're we're getting to a point where uh, you know a lot of there's a lot of things going on in the background. A lot of companies are looking at uh, what they call nearshoring or friend shoring, uh, which is they're moving uh, their suppliers from uh, China over to uh, more friendly countries, uh, including Mexico. Uh, Mexico is and, and Central America, there's a lot of production facilities going on there. And the idea is to bring those closer to home and, uh, and to be able to have quicker access uh, with, you know, a friendlier bunch of people um, that are flowing to, to the U.S. And, um, you know, we're also, we're also seeing organizations are doing what they call supply chain mapping. So they're starting to study and analyze, you know, where their stuff comes from and starting to delve down into these Tier 1, Tier 2, Tier 3 suppliers. Uh, I spoke to a gentleman at GM, and they're doing just that, and, and they're mapping out these supply chains and they're identifying, you know, vulnerabilities and and starting to address those by finding uh, alternative suppliers. So, so yeah, I think you know people are smart, and this is a problem that we've been kind of evading for a long time. Uh, and uh, a lot of executives are working to make it better. So, I, I think it's definitely getting better. I think we're going to start to see inflation come down in the next year. Uh, we'll start to see supply come back, especially on car lots, uh, and I think it's it's definitely getting better. Well, on that note, I want to Rob. I want to thank you for taking a little time out of your Sunday morning and joining us. And I was looking at the supply chain resource cooperative. There's a lot of good information there that that kind of gives uh, people people some uh, some a little bit more background too. And that's um, uh, HTTPSCM dot ncsu.edu and if people want to find out if people want to find out more information and kind of learn about it and understand it a little bit a lot of good information is there as well absolutely and if if you go to uh supply chain resources under there there's a director's blog and i write a blog that uh probably every week and there's one on the uh automotive uh, ev supply chain that i just wrote last week that people can read more about it there well, Rob, again, I want to thank you for taking a little time out of your Sunday morning and joining us on the Car Doctor program. My pleasure. Thanks, John. L- All right. Take care. Here. Have take a great care. rest of the day. Bye-bye. Why don't you we take too. a quick Bye. break, pay some bills. My name is John Paul. This is the Car Doctor program. And if you want to join us, give us a call at 781-837-4900. We'll be right back. AAA is with you at every moment in your life. They have 24-hour 7 roadside assistance, which covers you in any car you're driving or riding in, even a rental or your friend's wheels. They have great member rates on home and auto insurance, savings on travel, hotels and rental cars, and discounts on hundreds of your favorite brands. You're covered on and off the road. Learn more at aaa.com slash join. It's Ram season right now at Quirk Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram on Route 139 in Marshfield. Quirk Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram is one of the largest dealerships of its kind in New England, featuring an incredible inventory of brand new Ram trucks, great customer service, and Quirk's Chrysler certified service department. Quirk Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram is accessible from all across the South Shore, just off Route 3 at the new Exit 27. Quirk works to save you money. Quirk works for you. Visit QuirkChryslerDodgeJeepRam.com. 
Don't miss the Just Steph show every Monday night from 8 to 10 p.m. for fun guests and tips on living your best life every day. I'm bringing sexy back to Monday nights. Tomorrow night from 8 to 10 on 95.9 WATD. And welcome back to the Car Doctor program on uh, 95.9 WATD. It's uh, always fun to be here on a Sunday morning. And uh, I want to thank uh, Rob for joining us on Sunday and chatting with us about uh, about the supply chain thing. And it it is sort of interesting and, I suppose, frustrating at the same time for people that, um, you know, they try to get stuff done and they just can't seem to get it done. So uh, it is it is. Uh, it is, it is interesting, certainly. I want to talk about the car that got me around and probably the last car that I'm going to be driving well, uh, last test car I'm going to be driving, I guess, while I'm still in Florida. And uh, that is the 2023 Hyundai Palisade. It's classified as a midsize SUV, although it feels bigger. The Palisade comes in five trim levels in either front wheel or all-wheel drive. All models use the same 3.8-liter V6 engine that produces uh, a more than adequate 291 horsepower. Used to be 300 horsepower was like the number. That was a lot of horsepower. Now, you know midsize SUV, 291 horsepower. Depending on trim levels, there are a broad range of tech features on all models. Our road test was in the uh, top trim, the calligraphy model, uh, which included a panoramic sunroof, high-definition infotainment system, better quality than my TV, uh, quilted leather upholstery, three rows of uh, heated seats. Uh, Like I said, uh, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, one of the things about the Palisade, I, I, I don't think there's any particular model of the palisade you choose that you won't find as a good vehicle it's it's spacious it's nicely equipped it's comfortable in every every seating position unlike some other three row suvs that the third row is kind of there for kids only um or maybe occasional seating for adults but not so easy to get into uh the cabin of the palisades a great place to spend some time the seats are comfortable offer plenty of leg and headroom and have enough adjustments to accommodate just about every size driver uh what's also nice and i've gotten quite a few questions about this lately the um passenger seat is power adjustable and a lot of times when you get a car with uh with power seats a lot of times it's just the driver's side, not the passenger side. So this one, the passenger seat's also adjustable for height and lumbar and bolstering and all that kind of stuff. Uh, the controls are nicely laid out. The shifter is a push-button arrangement, which, um, although it's not my favorite, seemed more refined than the last one I drove. Uh, I'm, I'm starting to adapt to push-buttons versus knobs versus toggles versus some other stuff um at least push buttons are pretty straightforward park reverse neutral drive easy easy enough um i i think i mentioned that last bmw i drove uh, you know there was many times i went to shift it into drive after backing out of a parking space and the best i could find was neutral and it just found it frustrating and again i think you drive it for a couple weeks you get over it and you but something as simple as shifting in and out of gear shouldn't be a challenge and uh, it isn't with this push buttons work real simple easy enough to do the one thing i will say 
and like a lot of push-button cars and push-button start cars is you can shut off the car uh, with the you know push-button on and off button, and it automatically puts it in park. So if you get in the habit of doing that, you get out of the car, you hit the start-stop button, the car goes into park, and you know you can safely lock it and walk away. But if you get a little bit confused and you hit the park button rather than the start-stop button, all of a sudden now... You haven't shut the car off, but your mind thinks you did. And you can figure out how I figured that out. Um, the infotainment system certainly one of the best. I really like it. It's got actual knobs and buttons, and you know some of the major functions are easy to use, minimizes driver distraction. The SE and SEL trims are... Uh, they seat eight passengers while well, the limited in our tester has second row captain seats so you, you lose one person back there but you get better seats because of it um, and also I think it just kind of opens up the cabin makes it feel a little more comfortable cargo volume with all the seats folded is just over 85 cubic feet so pretty big and like some luxury vehicles the seats can be power folded from the cargo area unlike I think it was a Range Rover or technically a Land Rover that I drove that had mechanical folding seats where this um, Hyundai Palisade had power folding so you you know you go to open the cargo area you go to load that big box from you know Home Depot or you know Lowe's or Walmart or whatever the case is and you got to you know go to the back seat and fold the seats the little button here you push it seat folds right down makes it nice and easy um, with all the seats in use cargo area drops to 18 cubic feet not a whole heck of a lot there is some underfloor storage to keep valuables out of sight technology abounds with wireless charging bluetooth connectivity apple carplay android auto there's even a wireless hotspot there's plenty of 12 volt power points and usb connections i got an email from a reader this week that has a 2023 uh kia sorento and as part of the navigation system, it warns them when there are red light cameras ahead. So it says, you know, caution, red light camera. In other words, don't be an idiot. Stop for the red light. Um, and he's like, I want to be able to mute this because there's four of them in my neighborhood and I know where they all are and they're in my neighborhood. So he's like, how can I stop this? How can I stop this thing from telling me that all the time? And I remember this Hyundai Palisade had a very similar feature and the only way I could silence it was to go in and just mute all of the navigation um, commands. So, you know, all that's all the stuff that tells you where to go left and right and so forth. So I suggested he did that. And let's face it, he wasn't using navigation in his own neighborhood. So he muted it and he's like, he emails me back and he says, thank you. Sounds of silence is very nice. So uh, he was happy. He was happy that fixed the problem. And it wasn't really a problem. It's just a design to warn you about that. On the road, the 3.8 liter V6 engine delivered balanced performance. Uh, again, the 291 horsepower engine is certainly more than adequate. You know, was it a hot rod? No, it still returns pretty decent fuel economy. Um, it's not a sports sedan. It was never meant to be. There's enough power to get it up to highway speeds with ease. EPA says 19 city, 25 miles per gallon. Uh, my driving is typically mostly city driving and I was getting about 21 miles per gallon which wasn't bad although some of the city roads near me here are 50 and 55 mile an hour roads so they feel plenty fast uh, the ride's comfortable certainly more designed for a family road trip than a 
two-lane, you know, sporty sporty road kind of driving. Overall, the Palisades, just a pleasure to drive. It's uh, safety is addressed with a full complement of features as well as a 360-degree camera that can make parking or trailering a small boat or camper much easier. I really wish some of these test cars would have trailer hitches on them so I could try some of the backup features. Um, you know, uh, it'd be kind of kind of fun to try. Um, you know, as well as the, uh, you know, smart cruise control, there's highway driving assist, which, you know, helps keep you in the lane. Reverse parking collision avoidance, so if you back it up and you didn't see that light post or whatever it is, it stops the car. Um, it also has uh, park assist, which is a remote parking assistant. So on the key fob, you push the remote car start. And then you push the either forward or backwards button, and the car will back out of a parking space. So if someone parks next to you so you can't get in the door, uh, you can actually back the car out of the parking spot without anyone being in the car. Um, kind of a novelty. I mean, I did it a couple times just to watch people go, there's no one driving that car. Um, is it necessary? I don't know. It seems like it, seems like it was a feature that was they were able to design into the car that no one really asked for but again it's kind of a neat novelty um the hyundai palisades an excellent suv that offers plenty of space and comfort uh you could also look at the kia telluride which is almost identical to the palisade does a real nice job too uh the palisade stylish uh Upgrade, updated interior, high-quality, near-luxury interior. It really does feel like a luxury car. And uh, the ride's smooth, and it makes us stand out in the segment. If you're in the market for a family-friendly SUV, um, the Palisade's certainly worth a closer look. I, I really liked it a lot, and I think it, I think it, you know, overall did a really good job. Our phone number, if you would like to join us, is 781-837-4900, 781-837-4900. If you want to talk to us about your car and your car problems, phone lines are phone lines are wide open if you want to join us. Uh, love to talk to you. A uh, couple of interesting emails lately. Uh, someone had a 2018 Honda CRV. It has about 78 thousand miles on it. a few weeks ago all the warning lights came on the dashboard suddenly there was an error code took it to the dealer they told him there was a number one cylinder misfire it needs a fuel injector kit uh, and they were even kind enough to give me the part number as well as an oil pressure sensor uh, it seems that the oil injector kit or the fuel injector kit is not available and they were told and and they were told by the service manager Hyundai's trying to get a new company I mean, Hyundai Honda's trying to make an trying to get a new company to make them there's no timetable and they said it could be months before uh it could be done maybe even a year uh there is even a a honda service bulletin acknowledging the problem with these cars so they said i have a car which i am told is not drivable and can cause even more damage if driven in the meantime he says well i have no car I have an extended warranty that will eventually cover the repair, and I'm fighting with Honda America and local Honda dealership as my car is not drivable. There's no part to repair it for who knows how long. I feel they should do the right thing and loan me a car until my CRV is repaired. Any insight or suggestions would be greatly appreciated. Uh, yeah, some some model Hondas, and originally they thought it was a software fix. If you drive shorter distances, uh, the engine doesn't get hot and it doesn't basically boil the excess fuel out of the crankcase and you end up with diluted oil and over time that diluted oil can cause an engine misfire which is what happened here um 
and again, the issue seems to be more common to vehicles that are driven short distances. Now, this is a 2018 CRV with a whole bunch of miles on it, 74,000 miles, which sounds like a lot. So I'm guessing for probably the first 50 or 60,000, maybe the car was driven a lot and maybe in the last year or so hasn't been driven that much. Um, the idea that it can't be driven, mm, it can be driven, but I would want to keep an eye on oil and oil dilution and see if the oil starting to get uh, to the point where it, you know, it's can become contaminated and, you know, cause more problems. Um, somebody else wrote to me, they have a 2019 Subaru Forester with all wheel drive. They still have the original tires with 46,000 miles on them. They recently had a tire slash beyond repair by a road hazard. They had it replaced at their regular service station. They asked if they needed to buy two tires to keep on opposite sides of the vehicle. The serviceman looked at the tread remaining and said he didn't need to buy two. The new one was placed on the rear. At, uh, at inspection time, they had the tires rotated, and the new one ended up on the left front. I can't get over the nagging thought that the traction on one side would be different than the other in an emergency stop or turn. This is well thought out that he, he was thinking about this. Um, am I remembering info I learned from my bias ply tire days where the original equipment tires only lasted 17,000 miles or so, or am I flirting with the danger for the sake of a $250 investment? Um, Subaru typically allows a single tire replacement if the new tire is within a quarter of an inch circumference or about two thirty seconds of each other. Chances are um, at 46,000 miles, that new tire is going to be well past 230 seconds of tread. So it's probably going to be, 40, say, 46,000 miles. Maybe it's down to five, five or six thirty seconds of tread. The new one's nine. So, yeah, you need to, you need to replace uh, at least two tires. In fact, Subaru models contain the following warning in their owner's manual. All four wheels should be fitted with tires of the same size, type, and brand. Furthermore, the amount of wear should be the same for all four tires. To me, this would imply that all four tires should match. So at this point, maybe you don't need to buy one tire. Maybe you need to buy three more tires to make them all match. Let's see, what else do we have? It, it was an interesting week for weird problems, I'll say. Uh, somebody has a 2007 Hyundai Santa Fe. It only has 60,000 miles on it. Uh, recently, it started to make some noise in the steering felt. It was off. They thought maybe it was a loose ball joint or something else. When they got to the local repair shop, the front subframe, the part that holds the suspension and engine all in place, was completely rusted through. And several years ago, the car was recalled for a rust issue where it was inspected and some rust-proof stuff was put on it. What is the obligation of Hyundai on this? Well, the original recall was for an inspection, and if the rusting was extensive and the car was still under warranty, the subframe was replaced. Now, rust warranty is different than, say, the powertrain warranty. On a Hyundai, the powertrain warranty is 10 years or 100,000 miles. The rust-proof, the rust-through warranty is 7 years or 70,000 miles. But they were saying, hey, look, you know, if it's under warranty, we'll replace it. Well, the other thing that should have happened is that when, and the product in the technical service bulletin, when I looked it up, uh, looked an awful lot like wax oil. And you, you know I'm a fan of wax oil. I think it's a good uh, rust preventative. Um, and in the process, it said you should spray all the exposed surfaces 
with the um, regular undercoating style spray. And then in all the nooks and crannies where you can't see, you were supposed to use the stuff that comes out of a, a, a spray can into a tube so you can spray it all inside the, the middle of the, the subframe. So what it should have done at that point, and this was years back, what it should have done at that point is, is kind of locked the rust in place. So if it was rusty, not rusted, but rusty, it should have kind of locked the rust in place and it shouldn't have gotten any worse. Now, th the procedure it was pretty involved. In fact, it, re it, it involved drilling some holes in the subframe so you could get inside there and spray and coat the inside of the subframe. Uh, then you would put this, these rubber plugs back in to keep any other water from getting in there. Um, I wonder if the rust prevention process was done properly um, to eliminate that, you know, to stop the issue. In other words, did it just go in for warranty? Someone just, you know, took a can of rust proof and spray, sprayed the exposed surfaces, said, yeah, it's all set, there's no problem. You were also, as I recall, you were also supposed to go in and, like, literally kind of, you know, bang on, you know, bang on the, the frame and see if it, you know, had any give to it. Similar to what uh, Toyota did years ago with the Toyota Tacoma truck that rusted out. You were supposed to, while the car was up in the air on a lift, you were supposed to take a ball-peen hammer, and, and they always they had some kind of, take a 24-ounce ball-peen hammer and, you know, bang it from 12 inches away, and if the frame deflected, you know, it was starting to rust away, and, you know, you replaced it or bought the car back or whatever the case is. So, to me, I wonder if this was just, you know, was it done correctly? Is that was that part of the problem? Did it just not get done right? And that, you know, maybe that's, you know, maybe that was that was the issue. I I don't know. You know, no one. You know, I wasn't there, so I don't know what happened. But certainly, that could have been one of the things that can happen. Um, this is kind of a uh, if you own a collector car, you own a car that's you know spends the winter somewhere or the summer somewhere um person says i park with my car covered in my driveway where it six, sits for 6 months uh do you have any suggestions to prevent the rotors from rusting uh while the car sits idle should i spray the rotors with wd40 no don't do that. Don't spray the rotors with anything. Although I will say I did find some product that's supposed to, it's not slippery, and I I'm, I just don't believe in that. Um, the only thing you do is kind of keep the car as clean and dry as possible. You know, don't park it on the grass. Don't park it on the dirt. Keep it on a, you know, keep it on a driveway. I've seen people actually put down a plastic tarp on the ground first and uh or even a you know a couple sheets of plywood, and then you park on top of that and keep some of the moisture at bay. Um um, that can kind of help. Uh, the best thing you can do if you can't do it is have somebody drive the car every couple of weeks. That will kind of knock off the accumulated rust. Um, my old car, when I went to do brakes on the car, one of the choices of brake rotors said uh, eliminates rotor rust or something like that. And um, I'm like, oh, they must be made in such a way when they were making the 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 metal for the rotors did they make them in such a way that um prevented rust and i'm like well i'm gonna buy those i'll spend the extra 
20 bucks a rotor or whatever it would cost. And uh, I'm like, hey, you know, I put these on. The car sat for the weekend. Didn't see any rust Monday morning. I'm like, hey, maybe there is something to this. After a month's worth of driving, you let the car sit overnight on a rainy night or a damp night where there's a lot to do. Next morning, you come out, surface rust on there. You know, most of the time, the rust comes right off. Um, if it sits for a long time on dirt, yeah, the brakes are going to be pretty well rusted, frozen. Uh, the old Volkswagen that we leave at home, uh, up north, uh, you know, it's been sitting there for six months now and not get used. Uh, it's going to make uh, it's going to make a lot of noise on its first few brake applications until you know it knocks all the rust off the brake rotors. But you know, hopefully the brake rotor slide, I mean the brake caliper slides haven't rusted in place, things like that. So, uh, you know, just some something to, you know, again, the best thing you can do for a car, the worst thing you can do for a car is let it sit. The best thing, you know, lack of use of a vehicle and um, uh, over, in, over in Randolph, uh, there's a shop called, um, oh, I just can't, it was, uh, the the guy's name was Walter who ran the shop. Why can't I think of the name? Auto something. And um he uh, he said to me, we were talking about a BMW that belonged to uh somebody and, and the guy wanted to, the guy wanted to sell the car but uh, the car didn't sit for a while. And, you know, Walter Walter said to me and you know, Walter passed away a bunch of years ago. He was real involved with uh South Shore Votech. Um I mean uh Blue Hills Votech. And in fact, they even have a scholarship. His his uh, wife still has a scholarship for kids in the Votech. Um, but he he said to me, and I'll remember it. He said, you know, lack of use is worse than abuse for a vehicle. Uh, letting it sit like that, where stuff just rusts and doesn't move, is just you know you're better off going out and just driving it. And that's and that is uh, words that I still use today. Uh, lack of use is worse than abuse, and letting a car sit for a long time like that just doesn't do the car any good at all. So, you know, when you can, if you have a car that, you know, if you have a collector car, you have a sports car, you have a, you know, a hot rod, whatever the case is, and you let it sit for the winter because you don't want to drive it in the summertime, or you don't want to drive it in, in bad road conditions, you, you're better off, you know, every two weeks or every month on a nice dry day, get out and take it for a ride, drive it 30, 40 minutes, an hour, exercise the car a little bit. It's going to be good for the engine. It's going to be good for all the moving parts. And it's just it's better for the vehicle all the way around. So, you know, go out and, you know, exercise the vehicle, come back, clean it up a dry day. It's not going to get real dirty. So, you know, clean it up, get it, get it clean again, put it away for a month and then redo it again. That's one of the best things you can do. Speaking of washing a car, somebody wrote to me in with a relatively simple question. Um, I spent the afternoon using paste wax to polish my car, and it looks great. Will washing the car with car wash soap or an automatic car, car wash remove the wax? Is there a brand of car wash soap you recommend? Um, certainly repeating repeated washing over time will remove wax. No question about that. Um, but car wash soaps are designed to work uh, with the wax and not remove it. Um, I've been using uh, Meguiar's Ultimate Wash and Wax. Um, I'm a I'm a Meguiar's fan, and it's not because I, I honestly wish Meguiar's would send me a whole bunch of products, but um, they don't. Uh, but I I'm a fan of their products, and I find their um, their their waterless car wash works really well. I I like it better than some of the other brands. Um, 
Um, I just find it works really good. Use a lot of microfiber cloths. And, you know, if you you know, if you just, you know, drove down a muddy road, it's not meant for that. Wash that, you know, wash that off of the hose. But if you have, you know, pollen or dust or, you know, light dirt on the car or, you know, a bird just went by and pooped on your car, uh, go out there with the waterless car wash. It'll work really well for that. Um, but, yeah, their ultimate wash and wax does a nice job. It it, uh, it also leaves it with, you know, it, it kind of renews the wax that's already on the car. Um, the one product you never want to use is dish detergent. Dish detergent will remove the wax. So if you want to remove the wax off your car, maybe you put paste wax on your car. You want to remove it because then you want to maybe do like a ceramic coat or something. Then you want to try to get the car down as close to bare paint as you can and then you want to you want to use you could use something like you know dawn dish detergent or something like that to try to get all the wax off you can and if you're going to do ceramic coat um don't cheat do it the real way you know really do the the paint correction which means you know clean it the best you can clay bar it afterwards take a clay bar and remove as much of the the contaminants that are in the paint as you can because when you do this ceramic coat which is essentially a, a uh, you know, a type of wax that really seals the paint in and lasts for years. Um, you don't want to seal in contaminants. So you want to get your, the preparation like with anything. You know, if you're you're painting a ceiling in your house, preparation is the key to getting a good paint job. Same thing with, you know, getting a good look of your car. It's all about the preparation. Why don't we take another break? My name is John Paul. This is the Car Doctor Program. You, if you would like to join us, 781-837-4900. We'll be right back. AAA is with you at every moment in your life. They have 24-hour 7 roadside assistance, which covers you in any car you're driving or riding in, even a rental or your friend's wheels. They have great member rates on home and auto insurance, savings on travel, hotels and rental cars, and discounts on hundreds of your favorite brands. You're covered on and off the road. Learn more at aaa.com slash join. I am Marco, and I am always been full of life, full of energy, and always on the go. At the age of 21, I was diagnosed with kidney disease. My life was saved by an organ donor. Receiving a life-saving organ put my life back into play, and I was able to move forward and make my dreams come true. Anyone can sign up to be an organ donor, whether you're 16 or 96. Be a hero. Be an organ donor. Register today. Register at mass.gov slash organ donor. Sponsored by New England Donor Services. Talk radio with a South Shore point of view. Hi, I'm Kevin Chachi. Join me tomorrow for Monday Night Talk, where the South Shore comes to talk. Tomorrow night after the 6 o'clock news here on 95.9 WAPD. My pappy said, son, you're going to drive me to drinking if you don't stop driving that hot rod Lincoln. Have you heard the story of the hot rod race with the Fords and Lincolns was setting the pace? That story is true. I'm here to say I was driving. And welcome back to the Car Doctor program on WATD 95.9. And uh, remember, you can always listen to us online. You can tell your smart speaker, you know, to... Tune into us. And uh, next week, by the way, we'll be talking to Sean Wynn. Sean Wynn is a science and technology specialist. Sounds like a big title, but he's going to tell us all about Pennzoil oil and why you should change your oil and how often you should change it and why it needs to be changed. But right now, let's talk to Joe from Lynn. Joe, good morning. Yes, hi. Um, I had a real quick question. Uh, I have a six, uh, 2016 uh, Nissan Frontier, and I uh, heard on the radio that there was a recall 
on the uh, shifting gear that it might pop out of park um, when it's um, when the ignition's off, and you have to put the brake on the emergency brake all the time. Yeah, I mean that's that's something. I mean, realistically, that's something you should do anyway, which no one ever does, by the way. Um, um, you know, whenever you know, the park is really not designed to hold the car in park. It's really designed to, you know, just um, just kind of keep it from rolling. And you know, if you read the owner's manual, um, you would see something. You would see something that says. You know, whenever you put your car in park, you should always use the parking brake. And and we used to call we used to call it an emergency brake, but um, I think the lawyers got involved and said, "Well, you know, it's not for an emergency; it's only for uh, it's only for parking." But yeah, um, I think it was I think it was, you know, there was there was some. Uh, now, what year is yours? Two thousand sixteen. Yeah, I, I thought it was just the newer ones. 2020 to 2022 um, that had the recall. Oh, now, okay. Yeah, I don't think it was the I don't think it was the older one, and it and it really it was the the parking pall, the thing that engages the the um, the outside of a clutch drum inside the transmission that keeps it from moving. And yeah, until whatever the fix is, they. They tell you that oh yeah you gotta gotta do something like that but yeah I'm you know I'm I'm you know once you got me thinking here I just I just Googled it to see what happened and said uh, let's see uh, Nissan North America is recalling certain uh, Titan Frontier and Rogue vehicles um, and then it, it goes on to say there's some other vehicles parking parking pole may not engage and it says result can vehicle drive away uh, and it says owners are advised to apply the parking brake every time they park dealers will perform the applicable repairs free of charge but it's it's only it only looks like it's in the newer ones so oh, what uh, yes but what yeah i mean you know why why have to you know go to go to the deal if you don't have to but a good way if you go on if you go online and go on uh nitsa's website the nhtsa.gov website and mm-hmm. and get your and get your vehicle registration here and you put in the vehicle identification number that 17 digit identification number it will tell you if your particular vehicle has had a recall or not and it'll tell you even if it, you, you know it'll say you know open recalls and it'll let you know if if anything needs to be done to the vehicle so um I would just double check on that website to see whether, in fact, it was. But it doesn't look like it doesn't look like it's on your vehicle. I think it's just on. I think it's just on some newer ones. And that's NHTA. N N H T S A. S A. Okay. Yeah, so National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Okay. Great. Thank you. Okay. All right. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. So you could call us just like Joe did seven eight one eight three seven forty nine hundred. Although we're we're getting close, we have a couple minutes left. Let let's uh, go over maybe one more interesting question that has come up. Um, somebody has a two thousand, so a two thousand Lexus with twenty nine thousand original miles. It's in pristine condition. However, from time to time, they say when turning the steering wheel, they hear a noise that seems to be coming from the power steering pump. I don't know if it's the pump or the belt. Any ideas? Um, you know, at 23 years old, um, if the belts are original, replace them. 
Um, even though there's only 20,000 miles on it, it used to be we re- we used to replace fan belts and radiator hoses every two or three years, kind of normal course. Um, maybe you could get five out of them, but every two or three years. Now we're seeing the serpentine belts because of the way they're designed. They can last 10 years, if not even a little bit longer. Um, but at this point, I would replace the belts uh, if they're original. If they're uh, if if not, um, the next thing to do would be with the engine running. Take a little bit of um, even just a spray bottle with water in it. And if you hear something that you think is the belt noise, um, spray some water right on the belt while it's running. And if the if the noise changes, uh, if it kind of goes away because you've you've kind of lubricated the belt, uh, you know it's the belt. If it doesn't go away, you know it's the power steering pump. Uh, you could also either get a mechanic stethoscope, which is basically a stethoscope with a long metal rod on it, or you could take a wooden dowel, or you could take a piece of hose and stick one end next to your ear and the other end next to the pump and um, and listen. You know, uh, you know, mechanics used to take things like screwdrivers, take a long screwdriver and put it you know, right on the offending component and listen on the handle end. Uh, like I said, a piece of heater hose will do the same thing or, um, you know, even a wooden dowel. Um, you know, you want to make sure that you don't you don't touch anything that's moving because you don't want you don't want to, you know, hit the moving part and, and bang into your head. So. Hey, I think we are just about out of time, and I want to thank our our guest, Rob, for joining us and telling us about supply chain issues, something, you know, we've all heard about, but, you know, do we really know what they are? And I think we really do now, so thanks for Rob for taking time out of his Sunday morning, and uh, thanks for Jesse for taking time out of his Sunday morning for running the board, right, Jess? Correct. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Uh, So until next week, make sure you uh, uh, wear your seatbelt, Drive safely, be good to your car, and if you do see an emergency vehicle by the side of the road, slow down or move over. It saves lives. Talk to you all next week. Bye-bye.